You have likely observed that humans, especially overweight humans, come in a variety of shapes and sizes. We all know that excess body fat is not a good thing for health, nor for self-esteem. But where fat is distributed on the body plays a big role in whether excess fat increases risk for conditions such as type 2 diabetes, coronary disease, stroke, cancer, cognitive decline, dementia, and premature death, or whether it is only a cosmetic issue and a challenge to weight-bearing joints, but not for all the common chronic conditions mentioned. Doctors often rely on a measure called the body mass index, or BMI. BMI is obtained through a simple calculation, or by referring to a table that lists BMIs, of height divided by weight. A BMI of 18.5 to 24.9 is considered normal, overweight is 25 to 29.9, over 30 is obese. But BMI suffers from a fundamental flaw. It assumes that body fat is distributed uniformly throughout the body, which of course it is not. They also rely on total weight, which also does not necessarily give you any real health insights. So let's talk about how you can do better than the doctor to make determinations about whether the fat on your body is interfering with your health and longevity or whether it's not. Later in the podcast, let's talk about Defiant Health's sponsor, Paleo Valley. Their fermented grass-fed beef sticks, bone broth protein, rich in collagen, organic super greens, and low-carb superfood bars have among the cleanest ingredient lists for any products of their kind. They're also expanding their Wild Pastures service that delivers 100% grass-fed and finished pastured meats from a regenerative family farm right to your door. And they have more recently introduced some interesting new products, including chocolate-flavored grass-fed bone broth protein, grass-fed organ complex in capsule form, and essential electrolytes to add to your intake of electrolytes such as magnesium. So, let's talk about where fat is distributed matters, whether it's in the abdomen, in the buttocks, in thighs, calves, arms, chest, etc. Let's take that issue of BMI again. So, let's have a make-believe woman named Jane. She's 5 foot 5. She weighs 160 pounds. Now, you can use the calculation. You can find websites that do it for you. You can find tables of BMI. And you'll see that Jane's BMI, that is height divided by weight, is 26.2. So as I mentioned in the opening comments, that puts her into the overweight range. But let's take a look at Jane. Does she have a large abdomen, a protuberant abdomen with love handles? Or does she have a larger pelvic area and big thighs and calves, but doesn't have a lot of fat in her abdomen, doesn't have a protuberant abdomen? Th those are two very different situations. Now, when, when fat is concentrated in the abdomen, that is encircling the, the organs like liver, intestines, spleen, kidneys, etc. That's called visceral fat, abdominal fat. It's also sometimes called android fat because it's more common in guys, except in ladies when they are postmenopausal, then ladies will take on the so-called android form of fat, more abdominal fat. That's very inflammatory fat. Now, fat distributed elsewhere, say chest, arms, thighs, buttocks, that's called subcutaneous fat. That fat does not carry the same kinds of health implications. It's not inflammatory. There's some evidence it may even be protective. So that distinction 
abdominal visceral fat surrounding abdominal organs, but also evident on the surface expresses something called love handles or spare tire, versus subcutaneous fat, two very different situations. So Jane's BMI of 26.2 does not make that distinction. If, if you don't see Jane, if you can't look at her, you don't know whether her fat is in her buttocks and hips and thighs or whether it's in her abdomen, right? And so BMI is a very flawed measure. It's used in studies because it's easy and does give a crude idea of weight effects, but it is not the best measure to use. Of all things, a simple waist circumference is much superior because if, your waist, if you grow more visceral fat, your waist size goes up. If you lose visceral fat, your waist size goes down. Now, unfortunately, as often happens in conventional healthcare, the cutoffs that you're given are also very flawed. Think of it like diabetes if, and prediabetes. So you can make that determination with that measure called hemoglobin A1C, right? That's that long-term reflection of blood sugar fluctuations, typically over the last 60 to 90 days. And your doctor will tell you something like this. If your hemoglobin A1C is 5.7% or greater, that's prediabetes. If it's 6.5% or greater, that's type 2 diabetes. Prediabetes often leads to type 2 diabetes, of course. Of course, your doctor will say something like this. Oh, your hemoglobin A1C is 5.5%. You're just fine. Is that true? Absolutely not. At 5.5, you can still have plenty of health problems from that value, from the issues that arise from that value, in including a dramatic increase in cardiovascular risk, risk for cardiovascular death, as well as glycation issues like cataracts and deterioration of your joints and accelerated skin aging. So let me translate for you what the doctor said or meant. What he or she meant was your hemoglobin A1C is fine because you don't need insulin or drugs yet. That's their definition of health. You're healthy if you don't need a pharmaceutical agent or procedure, or death is not imminent, right? So what they cannot say is that a hemoglobin A1C of 5.5 or 5.6%, that you are absolved of all risk from that value. That is simply not true. 5.5 is actually a terrible number filled with health complications. It takes longer than a, than a hemoglobin A1C of, say, 6.5%, but you still have all kinds of health problems associated with that figure. You can appreciate that a lot of cutoffs for a variety of health measures are really tailored to serve the interests of the pharmaceutical industry and procedures. It's not, it's not geared up for health. And so we have to look at a lot of values, whether it's hemoglobin A1C or fasting glucose or blood pressure, not from the perspective of pharmaceuticals and procedures, but from the perspective of what is optimal or what is ideal, what values free you from long-term health complications. In reality, there is no cutoff. There's no simple cutoff uh, above which you're in trouble and below which you're not in trouble. It's a continuum, and it varies from person to person. You, you probably have a pretty good idea, though, if you have too much, if your waist is too large and thereby have excess visceral fat. But if you suspect you do, the only way to truly tell whether it has health implications for you is to assess multiple measures. So you can assess markers such as fasting glucose, fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, triglycerides on a cholesterol panel, HDL cholesterol. You know, it's the total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol that are absolutely useless values, yet those are the numbers that most people focus on and waste their time with silly things like statin cholesterol drugs. 
But despite the uselessness of those two measures, there's actually two very helpful measures on a standard cholesterol or lipid panel, and that's the triglycerides and HDL. Another helpful measure, C-reactive protein, and optionally, AST, ALT. These are liver tests in case you have fatty liver. Another helpful liver test is GGT, glamaglutamyl transferase, and fibrinogen, a clotting protein that often goes up when you have unhealthy metabolic status. Now, if you're going to aim for ideal, let's talk about that. An ideal fasting glucose is 70 to 90 milligrams per deciliter. Your doctor will often say something like, if you're below 126, you're okay. That's the cutoff for type 2 diabetes. Or after a meal, as long as you're not above 200, you're okay. Are those statements true? Absolutely not. Those values are associated with major deteriorations in health. So once again, translation, you don't need insulin or other diabetes drugs yet. You're therefore okay. So it's nonsense. So we aim for ideal glucose, 70 to 90 milligrams per deciliter of fasting. And I would also say never above 100, certainly not, not above 110 milligrams per deciliter after a meal in the 30 to 60 minutes after you start the meal when your peak blood sugar occurs. With regards to fasting insulin, an ideal level is four or less, four or less microunits per liter. You're often told that 10 is okay, 30 is okay. That's not true. Type 2 diabetics have levels of 90, 130, 150. Pre-diabetics, likewise, very high levels, 60, 90, something like that. You want an ideal insulin level because a low insulin level means your body is responding to insulin. It's not insulin resistant. So someone who's very responsive to insulin, let's say a slender active person, can have a fasting insulin level of two microunits per liter, nearly zero. An overweight inactive person who's insulin resistant can have a fasting insulin level of 90 or 140 microunits per liter. And that means that their organs, their muscle, their liver, their brain is not responding to insulin. And so the pancreas overcompensates by producing huge amounts of insulin. Now, that also causes visceral fat to accumulate. And so getting insulin down is a major means by which you can reduce visceral fat. We'll talk about that. With regards to hemoglobin A1c, an ideal level is 5.0% or lower. Most of us following my programs enjoy hemoglobin A1c's in the 4 range, 4.5% or something like that, not the 5.7% of prediabetes, not the 6.5% of diabetes, and not even 5.4, 5 5.5%, because those still carry implications for health. Triglycerides. Triglycerides are a very useful index of insulin resistance and your tolerance to carbohydrates. And we aim for an ideal level of triglycerides, which is 60 milligrams per deciliter or less. You'll see on a cholesterol panel, the reference range quoted, the normal range, is 150 milligrams per deciliter or less. That is nonsense. That's an arbitrary number simply made up. And if you look at a more detailed analysis of what's going on in your bloodstream, when you have a triglyceride level of say 135, you'll see that there are multiple major distortions in your metabolic measures. For instance, small LDL particles that cause heart disease very low density, VLDL particles that cause heart disease. All these things can be present at flagrant degrees when you have a triglyceride level even of 110, 114, 135. So 150 is an absurd cutoff. We therefore aim to a level of triglycerides, fasting triglycerides, 
where you almost never see small LDL particles, VLDL particles, and other abnormalities. And that's 60 milligrams per deciliter or less. HDL cholesterol, likewise, you'll see numbers like 40 and higher are, is okay for males, 50 and higher. They're not okay because HDL is an index also of metabolic health. So we aim for ideal values. And an ideal value of HDL cholesterol is 60 milligrams per deciliter or greater. It's not uncommon for those of us in my programs to have HDLs of 85, 90. You know, personally, years and years ago when I was a low-fat vegetarian, I made that big mistake. It made me a type 2 diabetic, gave me triglycerides of 390, and an HDL of 27. Now, by conventional rules, you can't really raise HDL very much. You can do things like exercise a lot, drink a little bit of wine, take a statin drug, take a fibrate drug, niacin to raise it, and it might go up to from 27, say, to 35. But if you do the things that I talk about and we reverse insulin resistance, my, my personal HDL is now in the 90s, 94 last I checked. So almost a quadrupling. By conventional thinking, that's not possible. We do it all the time. And a high HDL is a sign of potential for great longevity. So an HDL ideal level is 60 milligrams per deciliter or greater. C-reactive protein, we aim for zero or something very close to it, like a 0.1 milligrams per deciliter. How is C-reactive protein used in conventional circles? They use it as an excuse to give you statin drugs because there's some data, very flawed data, paid for by the drug industry, that if somebody has a high C-reactive protein, which they regard as 3.0 milligrams per deciliter or greater, that reflection of inflammation means you need a statin drug, which makes no sense at all, of course, but they spent many, many tens of millions of dollars to uh, develop studies to prove that people with high C-reactive protein have a reduction in cardiovascular risk. And that may be true, but it's nowhere near as much as they claim that that's the statistical sleight of hand where they exaggerate, wildly exaggerate the outcomes. So we aim for a C-reactive protein of zero or close to zero. And with the AST and ALT, those liver markers that tell you whether you have fatty liver or not, you want to aim towards about the mid-range or lower in the reference range quote, which can vary from lab to lab. Likewise, GGT and a fibrinogen level of 300 milligrams per deciliter or less. Those are not as helpful as the, as the initial measure I, I talked about, but if you're really interested in a deep dive, you can add those extra values. After the break... Let's talk about how you can go about reducing visceral fat, this thing that is associated with multiple metabolic distortions, evidenced by all those measures, how pharmaceuticals, diets, and even bariatric surgery are not full answers. The Defiant Health Podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley, makers of delicious grass-fed beef sticks, healthy snack bars, and other products. We are very picky around here and insist that any product we consider has no junk ingredients like maltodextrin, carrageenan, carboxymethylcellulose, sucralose, and of course, no added sugars. And all Paleo Valley products contain no gluten nor grains. In fact, I find Paleo Valley products among the cleanest of any in their category, and they're truly delicious. One of the habits I urge everyone to get into is to include a fermented food product at least once, if not several times per day in their lifestyles. Unlike nearly all other beef sticks available, the Paleo Valley grass-fed beef sticks are all naturally fermented, meaning they contain probiotic bacterial species. And now, Paleo Valley is expanding their Wild Pastures program that provides 100% grass-fed 
grass-finished pastured beef and pastured chicken and pork, raised without herbicides or pesticides and raised in the USA. And they've just added wild-caught seafood caught from the waters of Bristol Bay, Alaska. They're now offering a 20% lifetime discount on every order for a limited time. I'll post the web address in the Defiant Health show notes. Shipping for Paleo Valley products is free for orders of $75 or more. For more information or to order, go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. Enter the coupon code DEFIANT, not case sensitive, for a 15% discount to Defiant Health listeners. The web address is also listed in the Defiant Health show notes that accompany this podcast. And be sure to take a look at their other products, such as their organic super greens, rich with phytonutrients, and their super food bars that come in dark chocolate chip, apple cinnamon, and lemon meringue. They're low carb, of course, with eight grams net carbs per bar. The folks at Paleo Valley have lately been busy, recently adding some interesting new products, including pasture-raised fermented pork sticks, chocolate-flavored grass-fed bone broth protein, grass-fed organ complex in capsule form, pumpkin spice superfood bars with grass-fed bone broth protein for the fall season, and new essential electrolytes in powder form to add to the potassium and magnesium intake of your lifestyle, available in orange, lemon, and melon flavors. And for listeners to the Defiant Health Podcast, you can apply your discount code for a 15% discount. The discount code can be found in the show notes. Let's now talk about the conventional methods of losing weight. So there are three. There's diets, of course, a variety of different diets. Typically in the conventional world, they use low-fat or low-calorie diets, which, by the way, are quite dangerous. They actually have very substantial metabolic prices to pay. They ruin things. There's pharmaceuticals, drugs like Contrave or some of the GLP-1 agonists like Wegovi or Bieta or Trulicity that there's been a run on these drugs because people are using them for weight loss and people with diabetes are having a hard time finding supply of these drugs. Then, of course, there's various forms of bariatric surgery, lap band, gastric bypass. Now, it's important to know that none of these methods are selective or specific for visceral fat. They're mostly ways to lose subcutaneous fat. Best case scenario, the GLP-1 agonists uh, like those drugs I mentioned, cause about a 50-50 reduction in subcutaneous and visceral fat. Most of the other methods, including bariatric surgery procedures and the drugs, cause mostly loss from subcutaneous fat, less visceral fat. But visceral fat is the kind of fat that has the greatest health implications. All those conditions I mentioned, type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, hypertension, coronary disease, dementia, etc., And all these conventional methods also have problems associated with them. For instance, if you do a low-calorie diet or a low-fat diet or both low-fat, low-calorie diet, you're asking for gallstones. There's a shocking number of people who develop gallstones starting within four weeks of initiating a low-fat, low-calorie diet. Many more develop at eight weeks and many more develop at 12 weeks. It's shocking to me just how many people develop gallstones. That's not the only problem. There are other problems associated with those kinds of diets. It's been shown that people who reduce calories, for instance, over time, it may take some weeks or months for this effect to be generated, but your metabolic rate drops. In other words, the rate at which your body burns calories drops 
typically about 26%. And that means that when your metabolic rate is lower, you'll still regain weight even while you're cutting back on calories and even if you're exercising. So a low-calorie or low-fat approach booby traps your health. And when you do that, when you follow those kinds of diets, you lose typically about a, th a third of the weight you lose is muscle. And that's a problem because loss of muscle impairs health. There even is some data to suggest that when you lose muscle, let's say you lose 10 pounds, three of those pounds or so are muscle loss. Well, that's bad for health. It yields further metabolic disadvantages. It, it can raise blood sugar, insulin resistance. So you do not want to follow a low calorie or low fat diet. They're very destructive. And don't, please don't fall into the trap of believing that increasing your fat intake will increase your risk for heart disease. That is a fallacy. That is not true. So the diets have problems. The drugs likewise have problems. Many, many drugs have been retracted. Their approval has been retracted by the FDA because serious side effects develop. And this often comes to light after approval. So you may recall, for instance, Fen-Fen was approved and then withdrawn because it caused a serious form of valvular heart disease. There are other uh, weight loss drugs that are associated with sudden cardiac death. These are real serious side effects. And the current crop of medications, there are eight of them do have serious side effects. The GLP-1 agonists, such as Wegovy, appear to be more effective, but they cost anywhere between $1,000 and $1,500 a month, are only obtainable via injection, and also have other serious side effects, including about 50% of people experience nausea and vomiting. And the bariatric procedures are deeply flawed also, especially gastric bypass. People who have gastric bypass uh, typically will lose weight for the first two years, and then regain it after two years. So it's not a durable solution. And there are real serious complications. For instance, people who've had gastric bypass almost always develop small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We say SIBO, S-I-B-O, because you've lost stomach acid. And that allows oral microbes to colonize the upper small intestine. It allows fecal microbes to ascend up from the colon, giving you a small bowel filled with unhealthy microbes, and that alone has very serious long-term health implications. So the conventional answers to weight loss are not good at all. So what's the solution? Is there a way for you to specifically target visceral fat if you believe you do have visceral fat because maybe your triglycerides are high, your HDL is low, your hemoglobin A1C is too high, let's say 5.8%, your fasting glucose and fasting insulin are high-ish. So how can you reverse insulin resistance? Now, these methods also work if you're trying to lose subcutaneous fat, but this is how you specifically target the worst fat of all, that so-called android or apple shape where your fat is concentrated in the abdominal organs. You reverse insulin resistance. So when you have insulin resistance, that situation where you have very high levels of insulin, your body deposits fat into the visceral fat stores. So you want to get that insulin down. You want to make your organs like brain and liver and muscle sensitive to insulin. How do you do that? Very simple. In my programs, what we do is a program for reducing or eliminating insulin resistance. First step, don't eat foods that raise blood sugar because when blood sugar goes up, insulin goes up with it. So we're going to not eat foods that raise blood sugar. What foods raise blood sugar? Wheat, grains, and sugars. Period. That's all you got to do. Wheat, grains, and sugars. So we eliminate those things. And we don't limit fat, of course. Fat is satiating. So we 
We add back fat. We use more olive oil, use more butter. We don't buy lean cuts of meat. We buy full fat cuts. If you buy a pork chop or a steak, eat the fat. Don't trim it off. Eat the skin on chicken. Eat the skin on fish. If you're uh, brave enough, add back organ meats. Like liver is one of the easiest to add back. Full of nutrients, full of fat, very satiating. So no wheat, no grains, no sugars, and add back fats. Then address common nutrient deficiencies that develop not due to the diet, but due to modern lifestyle. So for instance, most people spend most of the day indoors. And when they do go outdoors, they're wearing clothes that cover much of the skin's surface area. And you may live in a northern climate. You're not getting the vitamin D you need. Likewise, you have to filter your drinking water because water flowing in a, in a stream or river is tainted by sewage or other things. And so we have to filter our water. But water filtration removes all magnesium. We also add iodine because uh, there are many people not getting sufficient iodine. Iodine is important for your thyroid status. Thyroid has a major influence over visceral fat and weight gain or your capacity to lose weight. And then lastly, omega-3 fatty acids. There's a long list of reasons why fish oil has beneficial effects on insulin resistance. But in particular, one of the effects of omega-3 fatty acids is it activates an enzyme lining your GI tract called intestinal alkaline phosphatase. And that deactivates, at least partially deactivates, some of the toxins that come from bacteria that would have otherwise gained entry into your bloodstream and caused insulin resistance. So those are the four nutrients we address. And then lastly, we address bowel flora, especially if you have SIBO. So it could be just dysbiosis that, that has disrupted microbial composition in the colon, but one in two Americans, by my estimation, also have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that's important because not only does it have very serious long-term health implications, including such things as diverticular disease and colon cancer, but it also, the small bowel is very poorly equipped to be filled with fecal microbes like E. coli and Klebsiella. The colon is well-equipped. It has a two-layer mucus barrier. The small intestine has a much thinner single-layer mucus barrier. So when fecal species like E. coli and Klebsiella make their way into the small bowel, you know, these microbes only live for a few hours. They, so there's rapid turnover of trillions of microbes living and dying in rapid succession. When they die, they release some of the components, specifically something called endotoxin. And that endotoxin gets through that single-layer mucus barrier of the small intestine, gets into the bloodstream. So when endotoxin enters the bloodstream, it's called endotoxemia. And that is a major driver of visceral fat, weight, and insulin resistance. Okay? So you do the entire program. So, by the way, this costs almost nothing. Yeah, you have to buy some supplements, maybe reorder your kitchen to get rid of wheat grains and sugars. There may be some modest expenses in dealing with SIBO. And this, by the way, is explained in great detail in my super gut book, in my drdavisinfanthealth.com website, where there's a very busy discussion forum. I have several thousand articles in my blog. And of course, our weekly Zoom meetings, me, we have our health coaches there and some other uh, staff of my on my programs, like April Duval, and about 80 people typically show up. We have a two-way conversation to support you in these programs. So in summary, if you want to get rid of visceral fat and subcutaneous fat, but you want a way specifically to target visceral fat, you've got to address insulin resistance. How do you do that? The diet. No wheat, no grains, no sugars, never limit fat, right? Address the nutrient deficiencies unique to modern life, because those four nutrients, when put together, help minimize or reduce insulin resistance.
And then lastly, address your bowel flora, especially SIBO. And by the way, addressing SIBO is very simple if you do it our way. If you follow the conventional doctor's way, when they're highly unlikely to even know what it is, if they do, if you have a very well-informed gastroenterologist, he or she will say, well, here's a prescription for rifaximin, an antibiotic. Now, wait a minute. Antibiotics cause the problem in the first place, along with other factors. Is an antibiotic now a solution? So we have a better solution, something called SIBO yogurt, a collection of microbes we make into a yogurt, not like the stuff in the store, completely different, but three microbes that colonize the upper GI tract where SIBO occurs, and we put in species and strains of bacteria that produce what are called bacteriocins, natural antibiotics effective against the species of SIBO. And so far, that little maneuver, what I call SIBO yogurt, has performed well beyond expectations. I think it's superior to any other strategy for eradicating fecal microbes in the small bowel. Now, if you learned something from listening to this episode of the Defiant Health Podcast, I invite you to subscribe through your favorite podcast directory, leave a review, leave a comment, and tell your friends. This is all about empowering you in health to get away from the tyranny of the healthcare system. Thanks for listening.